Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Total Bases Express Show. I am your host, Austin Spiro. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. We are going to continue with our greatest of all time series. This time, we are going to the greatest shortstops of all time. And as I've had for the entire series, Kevin Miller is here with me. Kevin, how are you doing today? I am. Uh, I'm struggling a little bit today, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah. I was telling you before we got started with the recording, I actually have pneumonia. So, um, you know, I, I, this is my Jordan flu game right now. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to do my best uh, to stay upright and give everything I've got to the, to the discussion because I have a lot to say about this shortstop list. This shortstop list is is very, very interesting. Um, so it should be a pretty good discussion. Um, and hopefully it's a good discussion in the comments because we are live in the Baseball Life Facebook group. Um, if you have not checked out the Baseball Life Facebook group, make sure you check us out. Uh, we are going to get started pretty quickly here. Let's, uh, let's get this going. Uh, where is share screen? There it is. And we are going to share. There we are. Let me know if you see it. Yep, there we are. Okay, I see it. Okay. See it online. Cool. So we are going to go to the greatest shortstops of all time. First, as always, we're going to talk about the first five that missed the cut. That is 11th through 15th. Um, so just missing the cut at 11th is Arky Vaughn. At twelfth, Luke Appling, Jimmy Rollins makes a pretty good uh, makes a pretty good showing there. Gets thirteenth on the list, and we talked about this last episode. I think this guy needs to be talked about more. Dave Concepcion, part of the Big Red Machine, finished fourteenth, and Luis Aparicio finished fifteenth. I think uh, in this case, I think Luis Aparicio got major disrespect, being ranked at fifteenth. I think he needed to be a little bit higher, and I'm sure my. Um, uh, Latin, uh, counterparts, uh, should, uh, would think he's probably a little bit higher on the list. Uh, what do you think about these first five that have just missed the cut there, Kevin? If I tried hard enough, I feel like I can make a case for any of them cracking the top 10. Mm -hmm. uh, at first glance, you think Jimmy Rollins doesn't belong, but then you look at the offensive numbers and you realize Jimmy Rollins is really daggum good. Yeah, uh, And as a switch hitter, that's just an added element. But I was a bit surprised that Dave Concepcion is where he is and another player that we'll talk about later made the list uh, because I view them pretty much identically. One guy just played longer. Right. So uh, I'm a little bit surprised he's 14th. It's probably a product of the fact that he was never a top three player on his own team. But that had more to do with his team being absolutely loaded. Yeah, and it's so funny because he he could very well be penalized for being on the big red machine, whereas Joe Morgan didn't. Right, Joe Morgan was still the number one second baseman um, in last week's episode, even though he was also on the same team. I and mean, we we talked about Dave Concepcion was the was the shortstop battery mate with Joe Morgan. So, you know, I just think it's funny that one guy is penalized for being on the big red machine and the other one is not. So it's just seems well, to, to be fair. Joe Morgan was also better. Than he Dave is. Concepcion. He was. He was. But, we, but we yeah, I do, I do. I do see what you're saying for sure. Yeah, we, we talked about it. Joe Morgan was probably the best hitter out of any of the big red machine, uh, big red machine hitters, even though you would have never guessed. You would have guessed it was either Johnny Bench or Pete Rose or somebody like that. But it was, in fact, Joe Morgan. 
Um, so let's get going. If all these guys miss the cut, who is our gatekeeper of the best shortstops of all time? Who is number 10? Number 10, Omar Vizquel. Omar Vizquel played a 24-year career with the Mariners, Indians, Giants, Rangers, White Sox, and Blue Jays. Can you talk? Can you say journeyman from 1989 to 2012? He played in the 13th most games all time, 2,968. Um, and we already know he's a career below average hitter, probably the lowest weighted runs created plus out of anybody on any of the lists that we, that you will see past or present or future. Probably one of the lowest wars too at 42 and a half war. He's got three all-star appearances, but he's got 11 gold gloves. Um, in my opinion, this is carrying more of the theme that we're seeing with the middle infielders, def especially defense matters. These defensive guys are showing up on these um, are showing up on these lists big time. Um, and I think it's just a product of shortstop and second base were not seen as offensive positions and still to this day are kind of eh, they're back and forth 50 50 in terms of offensive or defensive positions. So you know, I think you're seeing a plethora of defensive specialists or, you know, defense first guys on these top 10 lists. And I think Omar Vizquel is one of those. And I think he, you know, being widely considered probably the second best defensive shortstop um, among fans with uh, Ozzie Smith being number one. But I think Omar Vizquel was just really smooth at and at, and at with his hands and being you know, being the guy that's reliable on plays that you should make. What what do you think there, uh, Kevin? Do you, th do you think that's an accurate assessment or would you say something else about Omar Vizquel? I do think that's pretty accurate uh, when you consider uh, that he is the all-time leader in shortstop fielding percentage. That kind of lends to that thought process, you know. Um, he wasn't just a, a rangy shortstop, which he was. Uh, but he was also very sure-handed. He was uh, a clean fielder. Where Ozzy had a little bit more range than Omar, um, Omar was the guy that if the balls hit right to him, you expected the play to be made every single time. Right. And that's not, again, that's not to discount his range. He did have some, especially when he was younger. Um, but Omar Vizquel, is, he's in the top tier of defensive shortstops ever. And that's what put him on this list. I kind of, though view him and Dave Concepcion very, very similarly. I think Concepcion is a half step back defensively from Vizquel, but a half step up, maybe even a full step up offensively from Vizquel. And it, it makes me wonder why Vizquel made it to 10th on this list and Concepcion was 14th. Uh, I mean, we do see, you know, you mentioned the games played from Vizquel, that he did play longer. So, I mean, he almost ended up with 3,000 hits. I believe he's got about 2,900 hits. Uh, I think it's 2,800. I think it's closer to 28. Okay, 2,800 hits. Yeah. So, I mean, if he would have played another two years, you know, he knocks that out and gets to 3,000 hits, which is just crazy to think about Omar Vizquel, a guy who we know was not a good hitter, was that close to 3,000 hits. Um, you know, that I think that just kind of is an interesting thing to think about with him. We talk about Ozzie Smith not being an offensive juggernaut, and we'll talk more about that later when we get deeper into the list, I'm sure. But Omar Vizquel is a guy that I I struggle to have him in the top 10 strictly based on the merit of how bad 
he was offensively. Right. Um, to answer your question, 2,877. That's the number of hits he has. But he also played 24 years in the league. Um, so, I mean, you would hopefully, if you played that many years in a league, you would have somewhere close to, you know, 2,000, 2,500. You know, that's, you know, I think uh, it's great. It's, you know, he's close to that 3,000 hit threshold. But, I mean, it, it, I mean, he's markedly it's pretty much known that he was not a great hitter. He, he, he got here through his defense. Um, so let me ask you a question because it's a very, I think it's a um, highly contested uh, question, especially when we get around that time is Omar Vizquel a hall of famer. I would say no. And that gets tough because the, the response often is, so if he just had 123 more hits, would he have made the Hall of Fame? Well, that that's kind of an arbitrary number. Well, it's, I mean, but he didn't get there. Yeah. And and he didn't get there because he wasn't a good enough hitter. You know, I mean, he is a top He played three. long enough, to be right. honest. He played long enough. He should have had 3,000 hits. And right. when, you, when you look at the guys who have a lot of hits in the history of baseball, the majority of them were good hitters, duh. And the majority of them have more hits than games played. That's not true for Omar Vizquel. He has more games played than hits. Right. That just shows that his offensive value was pretty low. I'm not taking anything away from him as a, from him as a defender. There are four guys who are better than everybody else in terms of defending the shortstop position, and I think he's one of them. I think there's Ozzie Smith. I think there's Mark Ballinger. I think there's Omar Vizquel, and I think there's Anderton Simmons, and I think he's in that group, and he's in that group comfortably. Yeah. But he's probably the – well, Mark Ballinger was a pretty bad offensive player too. Um, but he he's not good enough offensively to make it to the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Last year, uh, I talked about it on a couple podcasts, and I talked about it in Baseball Life. I did have Omar Vizquel in the Hall of Fame. And I think the tiebreaker for me was, do you talk about Omar Vizquel in the same breath that you talk about Ozzie Smith? And a lot of people said it is Ozzie Smith. And then the next step down is Omar Vizquel. And I'm like, well, if you're that known for your defense, then maybe you should be considered for the Hall of Fame. But I think this guy, for me anyway, is a year-by-year basis. I have to continually go back and look at Omar Vizquel because he was so bad offensively. And, you know, there's just different things that you have to take into account. So he's back and forth for me. Last year, I, I gave him a nod and said yes, but it's not guaranteed this year. I'll have to go back and look, especially with the new candidates that we have now. Um, so let's go to number nine, uh, number nine in our greatest shortstops of all time is a little bit of a better hitter. Number nine is Alan Trammell. Alan Trammell played 20 years with the tigers from 1977 to 1996, little less games than, uh, Omar Vizquel there. He played in 2,293 career games, uh, amassing a career one eleven weighted runs created plus He's 94th all-time in war, 63.7. He made six all-star games, won four gold gloves, and three silver sluggers. And we saw his counterpart there, Lou Whitaker, be number 10 on the greatest uh, second baseman of all time. So Alan Trammell right there with his counterpart, Lou Whitaker, at the bottom of this top 10 list. Number nine. Uh, What do you think about Alan Trammell at number nine? I think it's about right. Uh, I, I could see him. I can see him being anywhere uh, from 
seven to 12 or 13 and then being okay with that ranking. I I have in the past found myself being somewhat of an Alan Trammell hater unintentionally because I, I think that Lou Whitaker gets underrated sometimes, especially in his pursuit of the Hall of Fame. And I think Lou Whitaker was just a touch better than Alan Trammell. So it was not intentionally going after Trammell. But in prepping for, for this show and stuff, I, I realized that Alan Trammell was a little bit better than, than I, I thought, especially, uh, especially offensively. You know, he had a really, really, really good 1987 season where you could have made an argument that he should have won the MVP. Right. Uh, hit 29 home runs. I believe he hit over 330. Uh, was just a really good player for the Tigers uh, that year and most of his career. And he's he's a guy that he's usually only thought of with Lou Whitaker. And I have a problem with it if he's thought of as the better player of the two. I think you at least need to view them as even, if not have Lou just a touch above Trammell. Uh, I believe in I believe statistically really in a lot of offensive statistics anyway, Lou Whitaker is just slightly better. Right. Yeah. Right. Trammell played an extra year. Um, so he's there. They have almost the same number of hits. It's kind of cool. Um, you know, a lot of their career, they hit back to back in the batting order. Yeah. And then on the all time hits list, they're back to back. Yeah. Um, so it's cool. You see, Tram- you see Trammell and Whitaker back to back there. So that's pretty cool. Um, but he, he's a guy, he's a guy I think belongs at the back end of this list. So I don't have a problem with him being ranked number nine. Yeah, there's certainly other grievances with this list that I have, and I don't have a problem with Alan Trammell being there. I mean, he was a staple with the Tigers for a while. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I really don't have any complaints. I wish that he could have been a little bit better of an offensive player, but again, we've talked about it when it comes to these. It's, it seems like it's kind of leaned more towards defense, and we're not holding offense as much to a uh, – as much to a standard when it comes to second and short as we normally do. And I think that's, that's pretty good because, you know, in the evolution of this position, you were looking at, um, at the evolution of this, uh, you know, the evolution of the game, you saw the shortstop become pretty much the captain of the infield. Right. And those guys are usually the best fielders. They know what's going on. They know where everybody should be. So, of course, the shortstop should probably be the best fielder. So, you know, if you're looking at if you're looking at your uh, shortstop to be the captain of at least your infield, then you better hope that he's the best defender out there. Right. Because he needs to know where everybody's going. So I have no problem like, uh, you know, going back to Trammell, I have no problem with Trammell there. Um, you know, him feeding with Lou Whitaker there, you know, it's kind of funny to me. It seems like they're kind of the same player offensively. So the fact that they're right around the same, um, they're around the same in terms of their ranking with their all-time respective positions is pretty cool. Um, yeah. so Alan Trammell, number nine, nice job. Uh, we'll go to number eight. So number eight in our quest for the top 10 short, uh, short stops of all time, Robin Yount. Robin Yount spent a 20-year career with the Brewers from 1974 to 1993, right about the same time as the as uh, uh, Trammell there. He played in the 17th most games all time, 2,856. Just a slightly better weighted runs created, plus 113. And he's 80th all-time in war, just a little bit better than Alan Trammell, 66.5. 
He played in three all-star three all-star games. He was the 1982 and 1989 NL MVP. He won the gold glove in 1982 and won three silver sluggers. And he's 20th all-time in hits at 3,142. Robin Yount is very interesting because I feel like, I felt like in terms of fans, Robin Yount is held to a little bit of a higher standard or held a little bit more in a positive light than Alan Trammell is. But then you get to these, you get to these rankings and Robin Yount is just slightly, slightly above Alan Trammell. And when you look at him statistically, they're, they're almost, they're pretty similar. And so I don't know. I've always gotten the feeling from fans that Robin Yount is held to a bit of a higher standard in terms of uh, shortstop lore. Um, maybe that's the fandom. Maybe that's you know just the era. Maybe it's a fact of nostalgia. I don't know. But then you get, like I said, you get to these, and Robin Yount is one step above Alan Trammell. Um, do you do you feel that way? Do you feel like Robin Yount is held to more in more of a positive light um, amongst baseball fans? I think that's generally the case, especially, you know, the 3000 hits number is pretty magical. Yeah. But I think, I think for this voting, it could have to do also with his change of position, you know, for, for pretty much the second half of his career, he was a center fielder. Right. Um, You know, his second MVP that he won uh, in 1989 was, uh, was as a center fielder. And if we're being honest, the fact that he only made three all-star games probably hurts and yeah. that's not his fault, I don't believe. I believe that's the fault of playing for the Milwaukee Brewers in the 1980s. Uh, they were not a very popular club, even when they were good. You know, they, there were times when they had some really good teams, mm-hmm. you know, with, with Yount and Paul Molitor and Cecil Cooper and, and, all, and Gorman Thomas. They had some ball players in Milwaukee, but they just they, – they weren't super popular. They weren't uh, watched – very much, even even at the time, a lot of people in Milwaukee uh, were Braves fans because the the team had previously been in Milwaukee. Yeah, and a lot of them did not adopt the Brewers, so I think that's got some some to do with it as well. Yeah, I you know, and I've noticed when it comes to you know when it comes to these types of things, you get, you look at the fan voting, and you'll see it a little bit here in in this in in this. Uh, list as well the more popular teams get the more popular players or get the more highly ranked players now am i saying that the 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 players that are on the yankees or the dodgers or the you know other fan favorite teams are 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 those players overrated no because i you know when we'll get to that discussion here in a little bit um but you know i think we're seeing also that you know the popularity i did think about this too the popularity of different franchises does hurt other players the brewers even today are probably not you know even in the first 10 teams that you think about right and they're they're not the most popular team in the world and but you have really good players right like robin yown and cooper and and molitor and people like that and they're seen more as a second tier you know, Hall of Famer or second tier all-time player, right? When really they could be held in a bit of a higher, um, in a bit of a higher light and maybe even, you know, get more all-star appearances or get more of these different awards. But, 
you know, they're not on a popular team. So I've always, I've said that for a while. Some of these awards are popularity contests, all-stars popularity contest, right? Um, so luckily it seems like MLB is starting to change that a little bit, which is good. Um, anything else on Robin Yount? No, just in the chat, we had Angel Morales um, agreeing with our sentiment that it's a little strange that Yount only made three all-star games. And yeah, um, yeah I mean, I think it has to do with Milwaukee. I just do. I, th- I think you're right on that. And his his slugging percentage we see at 4:30 there is a little bit higher than the the guys that we've seen so far. And I do think that the 80s and into the 90s we did see a bit of a shift in the shortstop position, right? Where where guys were quote allowed to hit. You know, I, obviously they were always allowed to hit, but it, the position started to change a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it, that's a really interesting um, anomaly to look at is the popularity of these teams and things like that. We've talked about it on other shows too, where did, some, well, you know, we talked about it in regards to like, forgotten or, or um, contested MVP races and stuff like that. Did this other guy win because he was on a winning team and the other guy was on a losing team and there's more popular that year and stuff like that. So popularity after a while, it does become um, a factor for sure. Um, so with that, nonetheless, Robin Yount is number eight. So now we're going to get into about our middle tier here with the top 10 shortstops of all time. Let's look at number seven. Number seven is another red Barry Larkin, Barry Larkin, uh, played 19 years with the Reds from 1986 to 2004. And you'll see a common thread here. A lot of these shortstops are playing their entire career with one team. So far, we've only had Omar Vizquel change a team. 19-year um, career with the Reds from 1986 to 2004. He played in 2,180 career games played. A little bit higher of a, a little bit higher slash line than uh, the other you know, offensive slash line than the other guys that we've been seeing here and a little bit higher weighted runs created plus 118. Uh, he's got a 67 war time for 76 all time, made 12 all-star appearances, won the MVP in the year I was born, 1995 and won three gold gloves and eight silver sluggers. Barry Larkin at number seven. Uh, do you think this is a respectable ranking there for Barry Larkin? I do. I do. I, I, I like Barry Larkin a lot. Um, when, when I think of Barry Larkin, I think about how athletic he was. Yes. Right. He wasn't he wasn't just a guy who was a smooth, uh, a smooth athlete on the baseball field. No, he was like actually an elite athlete, period. You know, and that that's actually evidenced a little bit by looking at his family. Mm-hmm. You know, his son, Shane, played in the in the NBA. His um, I believe it was his his uncle. Uh, played in major league baseball and so and his uh his mother was an athlete as well and you see that in Barry Larkin I remember when I was a young kid uh getting to watch some of Barry Larkin it was cool to see a guy who was born and raised in Cincinnati play really well for Cincinnati you know that 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 kind of story always is cool to me Right. And to, to see it result in not just a good career, but a, a Hall of Fame and worthy Hall of Fame career. I think that's that's extra special. You know, he's probably the best offensive uh, shortstop in the National League for about a decade. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I got no complaints with Barry Larkin here. I think this is right about where he should be. And yeah, he was a very, very athletic uh, person with obviously the film that I've seen. Um, I told you I was born in 95. So half of his career, I didn't, I didn't see. Um, so, but you know, it's, it's, it's nice to uh, see Barry Larkin on this list. And I think seven is right about the time where, right about where he belongs. Um, so Barry Larkin, number seven. Congrats, Barry Larkin. Uh, let's go. Sorry, I just wanted to, to add one thing. Um, there, it's also kind of a, an interesting nugget that you see with his slash line. It indicates that he walked a lot, right? Because yeah. his OBP is you know about eighty points higher than his batting average, and that was not something that middle infielders really did. It wasn't until the eighties and nineties that that started to happen. Middle infielders were were generally guys who would uh, who would just put the ball in play. That was their their role. Right. And Barry Larkin was one of those guys that helped change the way the middle infielders looked. I mean, a guy that that walked as much as he did uh, and could steal bases. Uh, he wasn't a crazy base stealing threat, but he did go 30-30 one year, uh, which is pretty impressive. Uh, let's see, 379 career stolen bases. Yeah. Um, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it is, that is pretty good. He's got one, two, uh, three, four, five, five different seasons over, over 30 stolen bases. He's got a 40 stolen base season and he's got a 51 stolen base season. Uh, and your, yeah. thir- your 30, 30 year we're looking at, uh, it's gotta 96. be 95, right? 96. Oh, 96. So not his MVP year. Not his envy. Wait, let me check. Yep, ninety six. He had thirty three homers in ninety. He had thirty three homers and fifty. Oh wait, uh, thirty six stolen bases in ninety six. Yeah, he stole fifty one in ninety five, but only hit fifteen home runs in ninety five. So there's that. I guess he stole even a little bit more than I remembered. But yeah, Barry Larkin was he. He was a fun player to watch, and and you know got the. Got a world championship in 1990, um, yep. which is a few years before I was born as well. But uh, he's he, bringing a, a title back to a place that honestly had gotten used to them in the 70s is pretty cool yeah. as well. Right, for sure. All right, Barry Larkin at number seven. Who is better than Barry Larkin? Well, let's see. Our number six, <sighs> Alex Rodriguez. Um. As you can tell, I don't I don't like Alex Rodriguez. A-Rod spent a 22-year career with the Mariners, Rangers, and Yankees from 1994 to 2013, was suspended for the entire 2014 season, and then played again from 2015 to 2016, all the while suing the Yankees for his money. Um, he played 2,784 career games, 27th all-time. He is... Uh, his career slash line 295, 380, and a 550 slugging good for 27th all time. He has a career 141 weighted runs created plus tied for 58th all time. He is 13th all time in war with 113.7. He played in 14 all star games, won the AL MVP in 2003, 2005, and 2007. He won two gold gloves. 10 silver sluggers is 26 all time in or 22nd all time in hits 3,115 
fifth all-time in homers at 696 and fourth all-time in career RBIs at 2,086. Um, do you want to take this first or do you want me to air my grievance as to why I hate that Alex Rodriguez is on this list? Uh, I'll take it first, but I'll keep okay. it short because I can't wait to hear this grievance. Uh, I, I just want to put it out there that if it weren't for the steroids and then the lying about the steroids and then potentially more steroids after that, uh, that we're probably talking about Alex Rodriguez at number one or number two on this list. However, and I'm sure this will be a lot of what you have to talk about, we can't erase those things from the history because they happened. So with that being said, I would love to hear your grievance with Alex so, Rodriguez. So Alex Rodriguez, the player, is uh, fine. You know, he was a really he was a really good player. And we can uh, we, we'll we'll set the steroids aside for a second, but just put a pin in that because because we'll talk about that here in a minute. But the the thing that I want to talk about here is I, I I have a really hard time considering Alex Rodriguez as a shortstop because from 2004 to 2016 he played five total games at shortstop. Pretty much when he got to the Yankees, he he moved over to third base. He played 1,194 games at third and 1,272 games at short. You cannot tell me that he is exclusively a shortstop. And the fact that he's better at the shortstop position than than, uh, Barry Larkin or Luis Aparicio or anybody like that, people who played shortstop for most, I guess Luis Aparicio is a bad example because he played multiple positions, but you know, other, these other guys that played shortstop for the, for the majority of their career, he's better than those guys at shortstop. No, you can't tell me that he played half of his career at short and half of his career at third. There's no reason for him to be up in the middle tier. If you want him to have, if you want to have him down at the bottom of the list, fine. But here's the other thing. Not only did you get caught once, not only did you get caught twice, I believe he got caught three times with steroids. He lied about it every single time. And then he tried to sue the Yankees for his money after he got, after he got his, after he got suspended. You don't get to cheat that many times and then get your money. That's how this works. And I I just, I have so many issues with Alex Rodriguez and a lot of them stem from steroids. And we know if you have heard anything about me, if you take steroids, I lose a lot of respect for you as a baseball player. But the fact that he did it multiple times, he was under this biogenesis scandal and tried to hide it so many times. It just baffles me at how these, at how a bunch of baseball fans can hold Alex Rodriguez to this high standard of, oh, he was one of the greatest shortstops. No, he wasn't. He cheated. He cheated his entire career. It's not even like Barry Bonds where he was skinny with the Pirates and then was jacked when he got to the Giants. And so somewhere there in his career, he decided he was going to take steroids. Alex Rodriguez started started steroids during the infancy of his major league career. He cheated all almost, if not all, of his entire MLB career, and we're going to hold him to one of the best shortstops in Major League Baseball when he played half of his career at third base? I'm sorry. I, I, I wouldn't even put Alex Rodriguez on this list despite the numbers that he has because the, these numbers, no matter what part of your career that we look at because he said that he cheated on the Mariners and he said he's cheated on the Rangers, it, it's all tainted. 
what what is Alex Rodriguez and what is steroids? I don't know. So I can't I can't differentiate any of this. So I'm not putting Alex Rodriguez on any of this list because I'm sorry, you copped out. You decided that you wanted to put you wanted numbers over legacy. And your legacy is you're a cheater. Both on the field and then you cheat with Jennifer Lopez. How do you cheat with Jennifer Lopez? How do you how how <laughs> why do you cheat on somebody like Jennifer Lopez? You threw that away just like you threw away your legacy on the baseball field. Sorry. That's my that's my spiel on Alex Rodriguez. I don't think he belongs on this list at all, but that's also because like I said, he's I have a I have a a a sticking point when it comes to uh, people with steroids. And I think it's because I played baseball for a long time. I loved baseball and I still love it. I loved playing it. I played from when I was six to when I was about 21 years old and I tried to do it the right. I went, I went out, worked every single day. And I, you know, I, I, you know, tried to be the best player that I could be. I tried to be the best teammate that I could be. I was in the gym. I was, you know, out there naturally trying to get better, naturally trying to get stronger, lifting weights like I should have and things like that. And so when people like this come along and cheat the entire way and then expect to be held to this, you know, godlike, fantastical, you know, type of you know, upper echelon of baseball players, it really upsets me, especially when you've got somebody like Willie, you, you know, you got people like Willie make now, obviously we don't know what some of these other guys were doing. Maybe some of these other guys that we don't know. I'm not saying Willie Mays cheated. Don't get, don't get out on me, baseball fans. But what I'm saying is like, we don't know what a lot of these people did. So, and that's what people come back with at me with is these you know, these are uh, you. A lot of the past players cheated. A lot of the past players that we love oh so dearly and hold to higher standards and are among baseball gods, they cheated too. I don't have any evidence of that, but we have concrete evidence that Alex Rodriguez cheated for most, if not all, of his baseball career. So I'm not putting him on this list at all. He got his numbers. Congratulations. You're not on any of my lists. That's that's just me. <sighs> Strong stance. Oh, yeah. Like now, and, I mean, I, I'm tired. Conseco, after that. <laughs> Kenseiko uh, says that A-Rod started in high school using uh, PEDs. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Now, to be fair, Kenseiko's crazy and hates Alex Rodriguez. That is very true. So maybe he's lying, but maybe he's not. And it's a shame because I truly believe that Alex Rodriguez would be toward the top of this list if you take all this out. I truly do. Exactly. But but we can't erase what he's done. Yeah, uh, it, It's absolutely a shame, though. He's the only guy in baseball history. I don't know if you know this. He's the only guy in baseball history with 600 home runs, uh, 2,000 RBI, 2,000 runs scored, and 3,000 hits. Only guy. And, and that's my thing, though, is he chose numbers over – you know, he chose all those totals over – having a bit of a better legacy as a baseball player. That's what he chose. And even then, like I said, how do you know what kind of baseball player he would have been if he didn't take those? You know, even even if he just took it once, even if he got caught once and said, okay, I'm done, I'm not doing it anymore. Like people like Nelson Cruz, right? Where he, they got busted and then they came back and proved that they could still be a good baseball player without the roids. 
or we assume anyway, I would assume with all of these tests that Nelson Cruz stayed clean after the biogenesis scandal. Now, like I said, Alex Rodriguez got busted multiple times in the in majors, did not stop. So to me, that's like, what type of baseball player were you? Were you really that good? Or was it the steroids? I don't know what to think of these numbers because I don't, I, I don't know what part of his career he was natural and what part of his career he wasn't. So I don't know. That's my whole thing. And I'm sure I'll get it from, uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll have a long, uh, especially my father and I will have a long conversation about it. Cause my dad has a little bit of a different opinion when it comes to steroids. His thing is, yeah, it's terrible, but you know, it's uh, it, you still have to hit the baseball. And I wholeheartedly, agree with that. The hardest thing to do in sports is to hit a baseball, but I just, I just have a problem with it. When you have so many athletes that are trying to naturally get better and naturally be the best at this game. And people like this just come along and tarnish it because of what I don't know, but they just want to, they want to enhance themselves and, and ruin it for everybody else that is trying to work, you know, work hard. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Alex Rodriguez, number six, as you can tell, highly contested by me. Um, do you have anything else to say on Alex Rodriguez before we move to our top five? I don't know that there's anything left to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we will leave it at that. Our top five now, our number five shortstop of all time, Ernie Banks. Ernie Banks spent a 19-year career with the Cubs, earning the moniker Mr. Cub from 1953 to 1971. He played in the 53rd most games all time, 2,528. A lot of a lot of durable um, players that have played a lot of games in this in this uh, in the standings here. Um, a 118 weighted runs created plus, and a pretty good slugging percentage, a 500 slugging percentage from Ernie Banks. He is. The 100th most productive player, according to war of all time, 63.3 war. He just eked into the top 100 of all time. He played in 14 all-star games, won a 1958 and 1959 NL MVP. And then in 1960, didn't win the MVP, but won the gold glove. And then he's tied for 23rd all-time in home runs with Eddie Matthews, 512. Now, I think my initial question would have been, Cubs are a very popular franchise. They're a storied franchise. And Ernie Banks is probably one of the most, if not the most, popular player from that, uh, from that era or from that team. Ryan Sandberg may have something to say about that, but Ernie Banks is Mr. Cub. And I guess my first question would have been, does he get that high because he's Mr. Cub, because he's so popular amongst one team? But I don't think this is a question. I think Ernie Banks deserves to be on this list and deserves to be right around the, this echelon of shortstops. Would you agree? Mostly. It gets a little bit tough, though, because like some of these other guys, we, we did see a position change for Ernie Banks. Just under half of his career was spent at first base. Uh, and it is worth mentioning that the majority of his good years, uh, as a matter of fact, the majority even of his career war was all at shortstop. So that's, that's important to point out. You know, his MVPs 
or at shortstop. His gold glove was at shortstop. Um, his 40 home run seasons were at shortstop. However, he did play almost half of his career games at first base. So that could have influenced voting. I know for me, whenever I, I vote, uh, voted on this particular list, it did affect it. I, I didn't have him quite this high because of the position shifting. However, I have no problem with Ernie Banks being this high because he was just that good right. the first decade of his career as a shortstop. You know, he played on some really bad Cubs teams for a lot <laughs> of his career, but made them watchable. You know, there, there, there is something to say about winning two MVPs in the National League while Willie Mays and Henry Aaron and Eddie Matthews and Sandy Koufax and all these guys were playing at the same time. He won two MVPs while those guys were running around. That's impressive. You can't overlook that. You know, and, and he's obviously uh, viewed as one of the most likable players of that era too. You know, people talk about double headers and how Ernie Banks was always eager to play one, you know, let's play two. That was one of those, one of those things attributed to him. I'm sure a lot of guys have, have uh, said it, but Ernie Banks was very popular during his time. Uh, very popular with the ladies from what I understand oh. uh, as he had uh, four wives or three, depending on, uh, I think one of the marriages was an old um, and then he had an, another woman who, who got left uh, everything in his will. So I think he's popular with the ladies as well. Uh, but Ernie like Banks, initially, I, anyway, after a while, it where it wore off. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. <laughs> I think so. Or, or maybe it was because he was popular with the ladies that he became less popular with the the lady he was with before. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, but uh, I don't have a problem with with Banks being this high because, like I said, even though he changed positions, he was that good as a shortstop his first decade in the league. You know, it's so funny because I'm looking at it now. He actually played more games as a first baseman than a shortstop. He played at wow. he played 1,259 games at first and 1,125 at shortstop with some other positions thrown in there. 69, nice. 69 games at third base, uh, 23 at left field. Um, yeah, so, you know, but still – I, that's interesting. I would have never guessed that he played more games as a first baseman than a shortstop. Um, it's another Rod Carew situation, I guess. Um, yeah. So Ernie Banks at number five. Uh, yeah, pretty cool. Um, let's see. Let's go to number four. Number four shortstop of all time. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter, the captain, who just handed over the captaincy to Aaron Judge. Uh, spent a 20-year career with the Yankees from 1995 to 2014. He played in the 29th most games all time, 2,747 career games. He has a career slash line, the highest average we've seen so far out of any of these guys, a 310 average and a 377 OBP and a 440 slugging. He had a 119 weighted runs created plus the highest average minus Alex Rodriguez of anybody on or the highest weighted runs created plus minus a rod on this list he has the highest war minus alex rodriguez on this on this list 73 or so far anyway 73.1 war good for 48th all time he played in 14 all-star games he's the 1996 rookie of the year 
won five gold gloves, five silver sluggers, and his sixth all-time in hits at 3,465 amongst amongst World Series championships um, and other accolades that you can go on and on and on about Derek Jeter. I think the biggest thing here, and this is a big debate uh, um, amongst, I don't know amongst baseball fans, but amongst Baseball Life Facebook group anyway, you seem to have two camps. Derek Jeter is one of the best shortstops on the planet and is one of the best shortstops in history of baseball. Then you have the other camp that says Derek Jeter is the most overrated player in MLB history. What camp are you in there, Kevin? I was formerly in the Derek Jeter is extremely overrated camp. However, I've come to put myself in a new camp that says Derek Jeter is extremely overrated by a lot of people, but he is now also extremely underrated by a lot of people because of this debate. And what I mean is there are a lot of people that have way too strong of an opinion that Derek Jeter is overrated. And in defense of that, there are now way too many people that have too strong of an opinion about how good Jeter was. Yeah. The reality to me is somewhere in the middle. I think he belongs in the top five of this list personally. I think he is probably the third or fourth best offensive shortstop that we'll see on this list, probably fourth best that we'll see on this list. I think his defense usually wasn't very good. However, there's also something to be said about winning five, right? Five World Series I championships. That, somewhere around there. There's something to be said about playing 20 years and never. I repeat, never having a losing season. There's something about being the captain of the New York Yankees and deserving to be the captain of the New York Yankees and acting like the captain. I know there's a lot of people that want to criticize that, you know, he liked to, to party sometimes and things like that. But uh, most athletes in New York do. You just don't always see them because, you know, they have they have means of hiding it. Whereas Jeter didn't necessarily mind being in the public eye. Derek Jeter is, I mean, you can't argue with some of these numbers. You can't say a 119 WRC plus is overrated from the shortstop position. You just can't. You can say that longevity uh, and until the end, never really getting hurt much played a role in him amassing as many hits as he did. But I think some of that's just being a good ball player. Right. So I don't have a problem with Derek Jeter being where he is on this list. I I, I think I would probably would have had him uh, fifth, uh, but I've got no issue with him being at number four. So Derek Jeter for me, for, you know, as long as I've been a baseball fan and could understand baseball, you know, past, you know, the basic, idea of the game has been my favorite baseball player ever. He's always been number one for me, but, and you know, some of it has to do with the fact that I think he was a good player defensively. Yes. He was average at best, maybe not even average when it comes to defense. We know that he could not go to one side. He had very, he had a very hard time going to one side. Um, even though he invented the jump throw, 
um, on the backhand side. But, and, you know, you have countless clutch, iconic moments of baseball history that are Derek Jeter's. You know, there's the Mr. November hits. There's him flying into the stands um, and bloodying himself up. There's the flip, right, against uh, Jeremy Giambi and the A's. There's all of these different all of these different clutch moments that we can talk about. We could talk about his 3000th hit being a home run. You can talk about his last, his last game in Yankee stadium, him hitting a walk-off, right? We could talk about uh, all these iconic moments that he just, that he just was a part of. He showed up when it was clutch, right? And he consistently showed up, you know, as the captain on the field, you know, he showed up when his team needed him. The reason why Derek Jeter is my favorite player is not because of his play on the ball field. It's his play on the ball field on top of how he handled himself on the ball field. Yeah, you know, and I watched the captain documentary. Yeah, he would go to parties. And yeah, you know, there were a couple, you know, close misses. If you believe, you know, and I would believe what the what the captain documentary had to say. but. For the most part, he handled himself about as best, I think, as somebody of his celebrity, somebody of his stature could hold himself to. He, you know, for me anyway, he handled himself with class. He handled himself and the team. He understood his role on the team to the T and went out and did his job. This man, for me, was a ball player. He went out and he was concerned with winning baseball games. He didn't care what was going on anywhere else. He wanted to win baseball games. His job was to win baseball games and that's it. And to me, that is what separates him amongst other, other people on the list for me. And it also could be because I watched you know, you could say that probably with a handful of other people, but it's because I watched him do it. And as a young athlete, for me, it was great to watch somebody like Derek Jeter handle himself the way he did. That's why I respect Derek Jeter. Now, I think he was a great ball player. I think number four is where he should be. You know, when you put everything together, the defense, the offense, the clutch moments, I would maybe actually put him maybe, and this might be personal bias. I maybe put him a little bit higher, put him two, three, somewhere around there. But that is my spiel on Derek Jeter. And that's why, you know, I, I hold that Derek Jeter was a great ball player, but being a ball player is not just how you play on the baseball field. It's how you handle yourself, especially in a market like New York, especially to the celebrity that he got to and probably still is, you know, in, in, in some cases, in my mind, this is where Derek Jeter belongs. And it, and we should be considering how he handled himself. I think the players that say, oh, he's overrated and blah, blah, whatever, only look at his field of play or only only his play on the field. And then they also have that disdain for the Yankees. And because Derek Jeter is the captain, right? I think that that that's also where 
we get some of the that camp of, oh, Derek Jeter was not as good as everybody says he was because he was just on the Yankees. If he was on any other team, nobody would ever, nobody would have ever talked about him. You know, maybe that's the case. But the fact of the matter was he played on the Yankees and he was on the most pop, he's on the most popular baseball franchise in the world. And he handled himself with, in my mind, the absolute best that any ball player in that situation would have handled themselves. That's just me. Um, you got any comment on that? That was a long spiel. Two Yankees yeah. where I've had a really long spiel of good <laughs> stuff. Yeah, I think you're right about, you know, Derek Jeter in New York. There was, there are countless athletes that have just been eaten alive by that city. You know, whether you want to, whether you want to look at. Oh, Joey you know, Gallo. <laughs> well, Joey Gallo. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> could not handle uh, being in New York, but. Uh, even for other reasons, you know, guys like Dwight Gooden couldn't couldn't hang around as a superstar in New York. You know, the off the field stuff caught up to him um, in other sports. You know, you see like Joe Kim Noah admits, like, I didn't handle being in New York because I wasn't ready for being in New York. You know, it's a different thing. And Jeter handled it and he handled it well. And uh, he also was a guy, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but he was a guy who was very good at learning while already a professional. And that's something that a lot of ball players don't do well. Uh, he came into a league where uh, guys like Maddox and Glavin and even Clemens and Schilling constantly, constantly peppered the outside corner of the plate until they were getting six to eight inches off the plate. He came into that league. What did he do? He adapted to become probably the best, just pure bat control opposite field single hitter we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that's a big exaggeration to say he he did not necessarily have that skill coming into this league, saw it was going to be important, so he learned it. There were times in his career where his defense got to a point where it was bad, but it didn't stay there because he adapted and he grew and he worked on things until it was decent. I don't think he deserved five gold gloves. I'm not at all saying that, but the, his reputation as a bad defender, I think, is overblown. I think yeah. there were times when he was bad and then he improved. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's almost a lost art in professional sports. Most guys don't improve. They just get better at things they're already good at. They don't improve with new skills. Typically Derek Jeter did. And I respect that a lot. And I think that's what separates these ball players from, you know, average MLB players and hall of fame players. Right. I think that's what separates these guys is are they able to adapt? Derek Jeter is one of them. Um, a current player that's really that, that that I think is a great example of adapting their game or, you know, getting better at things that they may not, not necessarily be good at, you know, when they started is Mike Trout. Right. Mike Trout was a real was not a great high ball hitter that when coming into the league. If if that ball touched anywhere near the lowest the low part of the zone, it was gone. But if you threw a high fastball, he couldn't hit it. He recognized that and fixed it. I still to this day think uh, Mike Trout. Not trying to get off on a tangent, but I still think to this day Mike Trout would have been a better left fielder. But going into center field, he did not have the arm for center field. But he went and fixed it, and now has a pretty good arm for center field. 
right? And I think that's those types of players, the Jeters, the Trouts, the players like that is what separates the Hall of Famers from maybe the Hall of Very Good or the Hall of Good Player, right? They were a good player, but they were never that Hall of Fame type is because they didn't adjust with the game, right? They just said, oh, well, you know, I guess. And we're seeing a lot of that now in today's game where we're seeing there's a lot of strikeouts and there's a lot of, you know, averages going down, but you're seeing a lot of hitters just concentrating on power because that's what they know. They're just going to do launch angle and just hit a homer, right? And they'll run into one every once in a while. Your average has gone down, but hey, look, I've, I've, I've increased my home run total, right? Yeah, great. We know you can hit power, but can you get on base, right? And you're right. Derek Jeter was one of those that was very good at being able to adapt to his game. Um, yeah. So Derek Jeter, number four, do you have any more comments about Derek Jeter before we move to our top three? Yeah. Just one last one. That, yeah. that 440 slugging percentage is pretty daggum good for a guy who wasn't a home run hitter. Yeah, I agree. You know, it, it just, you know, it wasn't that he didn't hit any home runs, but he hit enough and he hit a lot of triples for his era and he hit a fair amount of doubles too. that 440 slugging for a guy who only hit 20 home runs, what, four times, something like that, is pretty impressive. Um, I, I, that's that's something that I think probably gets overlooked in Derek Jeter's game. While he was definitely not a home run hitter, he wasn't void of power altogether. So Derek Jeter hit 260 career homers, which is still pretty respectable for the shortstop position. Uh, he hit 544 doubles in his career. Um, he even had, let's see, he had a 40 double season one time in 2004, he had 44 doubles. And then he had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different seasons where he hit over 30 doubles. Um, and then he had 66 total triples in his career. So yeah, I agree. Pretty good. Uh, pretty good numbers there, um, for a non-power hitting guy. And over 200 hits in three different decades is pretty impressive, too. I I agree. Um, all right. So let's go to who is better than the captain, according to the Baseball Life Facebook group. Well, their first guy, number three, Ozzie Smith. Ozzie Smith played a 19-year career with the Padres and Cardinals from 1978 to 1996. He played in 2,573 career games, good for 49th all-time. Um, you know, kind of the same thing as Omar Vizquel. He was known for his defense, not necessarily for his offense. A 90-career 90, 90 weighted runs created plus. But apart from Vizquel, he has... Uh, more than what is that about 25 more points with his war compared to uh, compared to Vizquel? He's got a 67.6 war, good for 74th all time. He played in 15 all star games despite not being, um, despite not being an offensive shortstop, 12 gold gloves, and even though he was not an offensive shortstop, he won the 1987 Silver Slugger. Um, so. I think this fits more again with our theme here with these up the middle, with these, you know, middle infield positions here, defense matters. Even though Ozzie Smith was not an offensive shortstop, he's up here in the top three in terms of shortstops. So I will give the four to you. Do you agree that Ozzie Smith is a top three shortstop of all time? 
even though he was not an, even though he did not have that great of offensive numbers. Um, I will go ahead, Kevin. Today is December the 23rd. For most people, that day is not important. But if you are Frank Costanza, <laughs> then you know exactly what this day is. It is the culmination of the Festivus season with the Festivus holiday. December 23rd is the day where grievances are aired, where earlier in the day feats of strength have been performed. And I'll have you know, my feats of strength have already been performed because I'm ready to air some grievances. Oh, okay, here we go. Ozzy Smith, who I believe, as a disclaimer, who I believe is the greatest defensive shortstop of all time, is not the third best shortstop to play baseball. Let's just look at the offensive numbers for just a second. 30 minutes ago, we trashed Omar Vizquel's offense. We're looking at Omar Vizquel again, except a little bit faster. That's what we're looking at. Ozzie Smith's career slugging percentage is 328, which is lower than his on-base percentage. Do you know how difficult it is to have such little pop in your bat that your slugging percentage is below your on-base percentage? That's really, really hard to do. He had four seasons, four, where his OPS plus, which if you're unfamiliar with OPS plus, it's just a statistic uh, where 100 is the baseline for average, not good, not just average MLB player. He had four seasons in his 19-year career that were above 100, and they were 101, 105, 105, and 112. And one of those 105s is the 1987 Silver Slugger season. Yes, he won the Silver Slugger while being a half step above average offensively. <laughs> His career OPS is very fittingly 666. <laughs> it is not worth celebrating this man. This is the Christmas season. We can't be celebrating 666 around here. That's not what we do. <laughs> it's not what we do. Ozzie Smith is at a tremendous, tremendous defensive shortstop. I think the best ever. But to have him be top three is ludicrous to me. Bill James, who a lot of a lot of people know who Bill James is, kind of the father of sabermetrics. He's an analytics sabermetrics godfather, so to speak. Uh, he has, over the course of his career, come up with different ways to, to value uh, baseball players. Uh, one of the ways that, that he does, he says that offensive value uh, is worth three times defensive value for players in general. He said it's going to be a little bit less than that for defensive specific positions, catcher, shortstop, a little bit of center field, a little, little bit of second base, a little bit of third base. So even if you half that and said that offense is worth one and a half times defense, Ozzie Smith doesn't belong in the top three because Ozzie Smith's offense was that bad. Ozzie Smith's career, career on base percentage is 337 while hitting a grand total of 28 home runs. <laughs> That's the stat that makes me laugh. There are major league baseball players currently 
that will hit more homers in in half a season. Aaron Judge hit more homers in half a season than Ozzie Smith did in his entire 19-year career in the bigs. I just try it. I just I love it. And I'm sure those 28 times he hit a homer, every time Ozzie Smith was probably was probably like, wait, that that went that went where? Went over the fence? Really? Okay. Well, all right. <laughs> Ozzy Smith's career high in total bases. Want to take a guess at what it was? Well, I'm looking at it, so I don't want to. I I I would cheat. Go ahead. Um, I'll I'll tell the world. It's 230 total bases. 230. There have been players who have had more hits than that in a season. <laughs> I, um. I don't. I don't understand. And my father is going to be furious when he hears this. Absolutely furious when he hears what I'm saying about Ozzie Smith but I do not understand how in a game where it's I I think it's pretty uh, objective at this point to recognize that offense does hold a greater overall value than defense how a guy who was actively bad offensively most of his career remember 15 of his 19 years he was at minimum below average how can he be in the top three for a position of all time? I know and understand and agree with the idea that he's the best defensive shortstop of all time. And because of that, and because it's a defensive position, I'm willing to put him on this list. But number three, you want to put, you want to put Ozzie Smith behind Derek Jeter, behind Ernie Banks? Ernie Banks at 500 home runs. Ozzie Smith hit 28. Ernie Banks hit more homers in one year than Ozzie Smith did in his whole career. He hit more home runs in one year like seven times. <laughs> All right, so here's the next question for you. Where does Ozzie Smith belong on this list? I think I think you can kick this scale off at the back end. And just slide Ozzie Smith in there at eight, nine, ten, somewhere. Wow. That, wow. Like, I did not. Wow. Okay. I, I'm being too harsh now. I'm leaning into the, the grievance probably, but man, I just, I, I can't, I can't fathom a guy who is, especially when you consider this, his, his the spot in the lineup he was hit most in his career was second. Arguably the most important spot in the lineup. Ozzie. Smith with his career 666 OPS, with his career 328 slugging percentage, with his career 28 home runs, hit most of his career in the two spot. Well, to be fair, in the 80s, it was the two spot was not what it was today. Today, the two Correct. spot is more of a of, of it's becoming more of a power position. That's where you're putting people like Bryce Harper and Mike Trout and people of that nature, which I hate. But, you know, in the 80s, when he played the number, the two guy was the guy that could bunt the guy that could sacrifice the guy that could, you know, you know, hit for contact and to be to to give to give Ozzie Smith credit in 1978 and in 1990. He hit, he led the league in sacrifice hits. And he had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 of his 19 year career where he had 
double digit sacrifice hits. So I will, and, and then even then, let's see, uh, in 1990, he had 10 sacrifice flies. So to give Ozzie Smith credit, in that sense, he fit the profile of a number two hitter. He was the sacrifice guy. But it's, it's not to say Ozzie Smith is a better offensive player than you think he is. Because, I mean, obviously, he was not great. But just saying, in the 80s, it was different. And you're right. But if you look at just his St. Louis career and discount the beginning of his career when he was in uh, San Diego, his grounded into double plays number and his sacrifice hit numbers are almost identical when you add them up. So as much as he might be advancing a guy with a bunt every now and then, he was also getting that guy killed on the base path as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the dude the dude was not a value offensively unless he somehow accidentally got on base because he could run. I will give him credit. He was a good base runner. He stole a lot of bases. Uh, I believe it was over 500 steals. Is that right? 580. Yeah, over 500 steals. So, I mean, he's a good base runner. I got to imagine if he was actually a halfway decent hitter, he would have been approaching 1,000 steals, which that that's that would have put him only behind Ricky, I believe. I'm pretty sure that that uh, Billy Hamilton and Ty Cobb and Lou Brock are all under a thousand. So I got to, I got to think that if Ozzy could hit just a little bit, he would have been in that same, uh, that same second tier with those other guys. But the problem was he couldn't, he could not hit, could not hit, could not hit, could not hit. And if you just are absolutely horrendous at one part of the game, I can't put you this high on the list, especially the part that according to the numbers holds a little bit more value. I, I would agree that Ozzie Smith is not number three. I don't know if I'd put him at 10, but I wouldn't put him at three. Um, I think I'd put him somewhere around like seven or eight. I'd put him somewhere around there. I think that's a little bit more realistic, um, you know, because let's face it. He was a better player than Omar Vizquel. He was better really? offensively than Vizquel. He was better, way better defensively than Vizquel was, right? And I mean, like I said, and a lot, a lot of the difference, the reason why Ozzie Smith has a 67.6 war is a lot of that is attributed to his defense. That's how good of a defensive player he was. Despite the fact that he was a bad offensive player, his defense puts him up at a Hall of Fame caliber average type of war. But, you know, offensively, yeah, you're, he was not a great hitter. So, yeah, I would put him probably somewhere around seven give him respect to his defense. Um, I don't know if I put him at 10. I was shocked when you said 10. Okay. Um, I just want to say this. According to baseball reference, his career OPS was 87. Okay. I think you've got fan graphs maybe on, on the, the slideshow we've got, but yeah. Or or you've got WRC plus. I got WRC plus, which is fan graphs. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, his OPS plus 87, right? The player in baseball who was complained about arguably the most last year, other than Joey Gallo, let me let me be clear, other than Joey Gallo for poor performance relative to uh, contract and ability and so on and so forth. And this isn't even considering the character of this player because nobody likes this player's character. But Marcel Ozuna was widely... Uh, criticized and rightfully so for being terrible last year and the year before. 
his OPS plus, 87. Ozzie Smith. I understand it's a little bit different situation, different era and everything, but for somebody to be viewed as so terrible, it's the same exact number as Ozzie Smith. Ozzie Smith was not just not good on offense, as people like my father would like me to believe. He was actively bad on offense. And that's what does it for me. Maybe I shouldn't say 10. Maybe that's a bit of an overreaction. But Ozzie Smith cannot be in the top three for me because of how bad he is offensively. And I'll I'll step down off of my, my soapbox now, um, and we can move on if you like. Boy, the nostalgia, though, of the of the Baseball Life Facebook group has hit twice now in two of these lists with Ryan Sandberg and probably Ozzie Smith being in the top three of shortstops all time. So who did Baseball Life vote as the number two shortstop of all time better than Ozzie Smith? That would be none other than Hannes Wagner. Hannes Wagner hit a or had a 21-year career with the Colonels and the Pirates from 1897 to 1917. He played in the 25th most games of all time, 2,792 career games. He hit for uh, the 40th all-time, uh, the 40th best all-time mark of a 327 average. Not much of a way of walks, only a 391 OBP and then a 466 um, slugging percentage. He is tied for 34th all-time in weighted runs created plus at 147. He's fifth all-time in war at 138.1. And then he's ninth all-time in hits. And for whatever reason, I don't I don't have it. Uh, usually I do on this presentation and I don't. Um, so while I find that, Mark, why don't you talk about Hannes Wagner at number two? Sure. Wagner, Wagner is a guy that uh, he, he kind of had an interesting start of his career. 3,420 hits. There it is. 3,420. Is that what you said? Yep. Wow. Um, the start of his career was pretty interesting um, because his family uh, didn't believe that he could make it as a pro ball player and even said that he wasn't the best player in the family, so he should give it up. <laughs> uh, he, had an, he had an older brother who who made it uh but just for one year and so he he gives credit to his brother for uh inspiring him and helping him become and stay a major leaguer but i find it hard to believe that a guy who could only make it one year in pro ball is better than who i think is the number one shortstop of all time but baseball life has voted number two and honus wagner is a guy that is absolutely uh, incredible offensively. He's a guy that did not look like a middle infielder from back in the day. Uh, he wasn't very tall, but it's hard to tell in the baggy uniforms, but he was very big. He was, he was very muscular, very almost like barrel chested is how I've seen him described. Baseball uh, reference, baseball reference lists him at 5'11", 200 pounds. And that 200 pounds at, at 5'11", is, is thick for that that's, era, especially. That's thick. Yeah, that's that's thick anyway, but that's that's thick with two C's when you consider the era. You know, yeah. we're talking we're talking about a big, thick country boy. That's what he was. Uh, he he, uh, he was referred to as who's the farm hand at one of his uh, one of his tryouts. He was just a young kid who was big and strong and knew how to play ball. They yeah. didn't know where to play him because of his size. They played him at third. They played him at first. They played him in the outfield, and when he was a rookie for the Louisville Colonels, 
which is a great team name, the Louisville Colonels, because now now we know that Kentucky Fried Chicken with Colonel Sanders is Louisville. So I just love that they were the Louisville Colonels. Yep. Anyway, they were they were trying to figure out where to play him, and they said, "Who who is this Wagner kid?" He said, "Well, he's going to grow up to be the best third baseman in the league, or or maybe the best first baseman, or." maybe the best outfielder. I don't know. He'll be the best something in the league. And they were right. It just happened to be that he eventually moved to shortstop and became the best shortstop in the league. Uh, he had a, he was known to have a really strong arm uh, as well. Uh, first baseman uh, would complain getting throws from across the diamond from Wagner. And he was a guy that, that was really fast too. He was called the flying Dutchman uh, because of his, his German heritage and how fast he was on the base paths I think he's top 10 all time in stolen bases and just the, just that, that sheer, the, the sheer amount of, of extra base hits he had, despite not being a big home run hitter, because nobody was during that era. It's pretty impressive. I mean, 466 slugging percentage is out of this world for a guy who didn't hit a whole lot of home runs. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, um, and I'm trying to find it here. Was Hannes Wagner the first player to ever be printed on a baseball card? I feel like I've read that somewhere. I don't know if he was the first. I do know that he uh, had and maybe still does the most valuable card of all time. $2.35 million. Yeah. And and the reason why is because he didn't believe in uh, children being exposed to tobacco products. And so the sponsor of the card, I can't remember if it was a chewing tobacco or, or cigarette. I can't remember, but it, it was a tobacco company that was, uh, that was sponsoring the cards. And so he and his people like destroyed the cards, like intentionally went out to destroy them. And so there were at one time there, there were only six left. I, I'm not sure how many are available now. Have, have you heard more on this? Um, I have not. I'm looking at the rarest baseball cards of all time, and it doesn't look like um, it doesn't look like it was Hannes Wagner. It was a guy named Andy Pathko uh, was the first uh, ever printed baseball card. Um, in 1952, Topps released the very first card, Andy Pathko, uh, and there and now there's only. 1,363 left in existence. Well, the, the Wagner card's older than that. So maybe that, that's yeah. the first ever Topps card. Maybe that's, a, yeah, I think that's the first ever Topps card. Yeah, because the Wagner card was, if I'm not mistaken, was from when he was playing. 1863 Harry Wright, looks like. Wow. That's the Civil War, man. I know. 1863? <laughs> I know. Man. And I want to fight each other. We're fighting each other and we're also buying bubblegum cards. Yeah, for real. <laughs> What's going on? Did it? And if I remember correctly, it started in cigarette packs, right? And then it went to bubblegum. Yeah. And, that, and that's why Wagner was upset about it because he didn't, he didn't want children exposed to tobacco products. Yeah. Or at least that's supposedly the, the reason we heard. Maybe he had a different reason, but that, that's, that's what, that's how the story goes. And, and my man and his people went around destroying the cards and, and threatening legal action against the companies because he never actually signed anything. Because back then, you know, licensing wasn't a real thing. If you if you wanted to put somebody's face on something, you could. So it was uh, it's what made that card so rare today. 
um, it, it's really crazy because one of the six that was uh, that was available uh, was found in an attic, like it would belong to a grandfather or great grandfather, and they had no idea what they had, and they were just cleaning out their attic and were like, "Hey, these are some old baseball cards. Let's get them checked out." And in there was one of the Wagner cards yeah. uh, that he had been destroying. So the first, the first card was Harry Wright. There, it wasn't in bubble gum. It wasn't in cigarette packs. It was actually just distributed. Was just handed out as a card, as a promotional, um, as a promotional like gimmick to get people to come to the Saint George, uh, Saint George's Cricket Grounds in Hoboken, New Jersey, in 1863 to come watch a baseball game. Wow. On, on cricket grounds. Yeah. On cricket grounds. That's great. There you go. History lesson there for you. During the civil war. During the civil let's forget war. About, let's forget about all this awful stuff going on right now. Let's go watch this game called baseball on the cricket grounds and go watch Harry Wright, whoever he is. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Some random dude. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to need to look at that guy's baseball reference page here, but nonetheless, Hannes Wagner probably considered one of the, or, or, I mean, he's considered one of the greatest shortstops of all time. Um, it made number two on the list here, uh, for baseball life's greatest, uh, shortstops of all time. And I'm trying and to I believe, I believe Austin that Wagner won the majority of his batting titles after age 30. Too, which is kind of an impressive thing when you consider how most ball players, you know, their their overall prime comes much earlier. I think most of his batting titles came after he turned thirty. So Harry Wright did play professional baseball. His eighteen sixty three card was not professional baseball. That's because that was right around the time baseball was starting to become. Uh, was was becoming a game and nobody played it professionally until the New York Knickerbockers became the first professional team and this and that, whatever. Harry Wright did play professional baseball, though. He played for the Boston Red Stockings uh, from uh, when he uh, from 1871 to 1877. He was 36 when he entered professional baseball and retired at 42. Uh, he played in well, actually. It looks like he only played in one game in 1875, 1876, and 1877. That's interesting. Um, he was a center fielder and a pitcher, and he's from Sheffield in the United Kingdom. He's British. So you mean to tell me that in America's pastime, the first baseball card we made was some random British dude? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't even while, play that while much. we're fighting the civil war <laughs> didn't even play that much he played in 180 professional games i need to research this guy more i need to know what how this how this dude made a mecca for baseball cards like it is today like this was a promotional thing like people wanted they thought that this was such a great idea I know what'll make people come to the ballpark. Let's print this dude's face, this random British guy's face on a card and tell fans that if you come to the cricket grounds, because we don't have anywhere to play baseball right now, that you'll get this dude's face. You'll get to take it home. Like, <laughs> At least tell me he had a cool mustache. 
please. Um, no, uh, the picture that I see here, oh, he does have a mustache, but it's it's pretty average. It kind of looks like mine. I'm very disappointed. <laughs> wow. You learn something new every day. I'm gonna need to I'm gonna need to research this guy more because now I want to go down a rabbit hole. Okay. So we've gotten we've gone from Hannes Wagner to Harry Wright, but who is the number one shortstop of all time? Not talking about center fielders and pitchers anymore. Who's the number one shortstop of all time? It is none other than Cal Ripken Jr. Once again, another lifer on his team. Cal Ripken Jr. played 21 years with the Orioles from 1981 to 2001. He's he's ninth all-time in career games played at 3,000 and one he didn't want flat 3000 he wanted 3001 uh he hit for a career 276 average 340 obp and a 447 slugging a career 112 weighted runs created plus not the highest offensive mark on this list mind you but he has a 92 and a half war which is only third on this list to a rod and um Hannes wagner He's uh, at a 92 and a half war. He's 24th all time played in 19 all-star games, won the 1982 rookie of the year, and then turned around in 1983 and won the AL MVP and then won it again in 1991. He had two gold gloves, eight silver sluggers. He's 16th all time in hits at 3,184 and 29th all time in RBIs at 1,695. Now, this guy, Cal Ripken Jr., is mainly the main combatant in the, you know, argument of um, Derek Jeter being overrated. Who's the better shortstop? Is it Cal Ripken Jr. or is it, uh, or is it Derek Jeter? And this really is the argument, you know, it mainly the argument of who's the greatest shortstop of all time. It's either Derek Jeter or Cal Ripken Jr. And obviously here, Baseball life has kind of settled the argument in this voting case as they think that Cal Ripken Jr. is the greatest shortstop of all time. Um, I This one is hard for me personally because I, because, and I think it has to do again with personal bias, but at the same time, you know, he didn't play shortstop after 97. His last one, two, three, four, five seasons, he played, uh, he played at third. Now, mind you, that he still played 2,300 career games at 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 uh, at shortstop, and only 600 games at third. Um, so you don't have as much of the debate of is he actually a shortstop? He was, in fact, the shortstop. Um, but yeah, there you go. So um, Cal Ripken Jr. at number one shortstop of all time. Kevin, what is your take here at Cal Ripken Jr. at number one instead of maybe another sort of uh, another player? Yeah, I think I mentioned it earlier. I would have had Wagner number one. Yeah. But but I I think Ripken's number two for me. Uh, when I consider the way he changed the position, mm-hmm. I, think, I think that plays a role in it as well. Ripken was part of that 80s and 90s era along with Yount and Larkin, who who helped change uh, the perception around the shortstop position. It's actually kind of funny, though. When he was growing up, he, he was a second baseman. And he was a second baseman because he was, he was so small. And his, uh, his coach 
was talking to his dad, you know, Cal senior, who was in baseball and was like, you know, I, I think, I think Cal's a, a second baseman. I just don't know if he's going to be big enough to be a shortstop. <laughs> Lo and behold, he becomes like this six, four and a half, 230 pound, massive shortstop, you know, a guy who, while he was playing short, nobody else was as big as him. So it's funny. He was viewed as too small to be a shortstop. And then he, then he was so big that some people questioned whether he could actually play there. And I, and I, I don't, I don't have any qualms with Cal Ripken Jr.'s defense. He won two gold gloves. I think that's fair. I, I don't think he's an all timer defensively. You know, I don't think he's even the best Orioles defensive shortstop. I think that's Mark Ballinger, but I, I think Ripken is a guy that with the 400 plus home runs and the longevity and, and the consistency, man, the consistency, you know, people thought that the, the Gehrig record was one of those unbreakable records. You know, we have debates over what record is most unbreakable. You know, is it Joe DiMaggio's hit streak? Is it, is it the, the seven MVPs from Barry Bonds, which that's up there. That's pretty, that's gotta be pretty high on the list, but you know, back then, they argued that Lou Gehrig's 2,100-plus games played streak was unbreakable until Cal Ripken, until Ripken came and broke it and then played another 400-plus games after that before taking a break. So it wasn't like he got there and then, you know, a day later sat, where I think a lot of, a lot of guys would have done that. He kept playing. Why? Because he loved baseball and he thought it was what was best for his team for him to play. And and I've I've admired that that once the streak was beaten, he didn't just he didn't just stop and say, now I'm gonna take a break. He kept playing. And I've I've always admired that. And you know, I know he moved to third base last few years, but um, I think it was the 2001 All-Star game. He was uh, he was voted in uh, as a starter at third base, kind of as like a legacy pick. And A-Rod was the shortstop. I know you hate A-Rod. But A-Rod was the shortstop on that AL All-Star team. And then um, as they as they went to take the field, A-Rod pushed Ripken over to shortstop uh, so Ripken could play short in his final All-Star game, which I think was pretty cool. And then he proceeded to hit a home run, which made it even cooler. Yeah. So that was that was a cool moment in my childhood. And, and that was also Tony – Tony Gwynn's last All-Star game and Mark McGuire's last All-Star game, they all kind of retired together and everybody knew they were going to retire together. And Gwynn and McGuire didn't get the same uh, the same love that Ripken got. And I think I think that's telling. McGuire, obviously, we found out later some things about him. But even Gwynn, who was a very well-loved guy, you know, Mr. Padre, who I'm sure will be on our outfield list whenever we get there. He didn't even get the same kind of love that Cal Ripken Jr. got. Right. So in that streak, so we're talking about this this streak that he had. Uh, Cal Ripken Jr.'s 2,632 consecutive game played streak was from May 30th, 1982 to September 19th, 1998. The man played 16 consecutive years without taking a seat. Um, I, that's just amazing to me. Number two is Lou Gehrig, 2,130, almost 500 games less than Cal Ripken Jr. After Gehrig, you're looking at Everett Scott, 1,307, 1,300 games less than, um, 
than than that. You got Steve Garvey at number four, uh, 1,207. Miguel Tejada is fifth on this list, 1,152. Billy Williams, 1,117. Joe Sewell, 1,103. Stan Musial, 895 consecutive games, number eight. Uh, Eddie Yost, 829 games, ninth all-time. And then uh, Gus Sewer, 822 games. Um, that's the, that's your top 10 there in terms of consecutive games played. I don't think we're going to see that come anywhere close, especially nowadays. Um, I would be surprised if there's a active streak of over, of over 300 games, to be honest. Um, it's just really hard to do, especially now with half of these fields being turf fields or not half. I'm probably exaggerating, but a lot of these fields being turf fields at this point, you know, you're seeing a lot more injuries with the turf fields because it's harder on your body and you're seeing more science and they need more rest and this and that. And the next thing, you know, you don't, you don't see the Ironmans anymore. It's almost you're, we're heralding these, this durability. If any player is playing at 162 games, which some players still are, don't get me wrong, but it's not as much as you used to see, and we will never see anybody play anywhere close to 2,600 straight games ever. Um, so I got to commend Cal Ripken's durability and being that good for that long of a time. I know we kind of had a um, sort of conversation privately with uh, Felipe and we had, you know, some, we had some talks about all, oh, you know, the people are talking about the durability and there's other times when, um, you know, people are being chastised as a compiler because they played for so long and then other people, they're heralded for their durability. And I added, it depends on the type of play that they had. If they played for a really long time and sucked for a lot of it or, you know, sucked for some part of it, then yeah, then we're going to talk about, well, they're just a compiler. But when you have somebody like, if I'm remembering Cal Ripken Jr. correctly, then, you know, we're seeing a guy who was good for all, for most, if not all of his career. And I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, you're, you know, offensively towards the back end of his career, we're seeing kind of below average, you know, hitting the back, really the back half of his career, the 90s of his career. Although in 1999, he hit for a 144 OPS plus. So you, you had some in there, but, you know, there's something to be said about playing for 2,600 straight games. That's, that's he didn't just DH either. He didn't DH at all. He played shortstop um, and, and, or third base. Um, I don't think I saw any DH at all. I gotta, I gotta check that. Uh, let's see. Uh, he DH'd exactly uh, 25 times. He DH'd once in his rookie season, 1981, or his first season anyway, 1981, he wasn't considered a rookie until 1982. Um, and then he DH'd 10 times in 2000 and then 14 times in 2001. And then he retired. Wow. So there's that. So any parting comments for Cal Ripken Jr. being at number one? No, I, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, the nineteen All Star appearances also that tells you how he was viewed while he played too, right? Yeah. You know, I, sure. I know. I know some of these other guys had high uh, All Star totals as well. You know, even Ozzy Smith went to like twelve All Star games or something like that. 
but to go to 19 all-star games in, in 21 years, really 20 years because uh, his first year was, uh, was not even enough to qualify him to be a rookie. That's, that's really impressive. And, and to win that world series there in his, in his rookie year as well, I believe it was his rookie year, 82. Um, that it's really impressive. And, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we talked about our first baseman and Eddie Murray was on the list. <clears throat> There's a really cool picture out there, <laughs> a celebratory picture from that world series where Eddie Murray and a young still with hair, Cal Ripken jr. Look <laughs> a lot like a, a discount version of Samuel L. Jackson and Matthew McConaughey drenched in sweat and champagne. And if you find it on the internet, you'll thank me. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, I had a chance to take a look at that picture and it is scary how similar they are. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, Cal Ripken Jr. at number one. So that concludes our show for shortstops, probably a little bit longer than normal because, well, we had we had such big grievances about a couple of these shortstops that we had to get them out um, on this Festivus um, day if for you, George Costanza fans. Um, our next one, we will be looking at the greatest third baseman of all time will be on Tuesday, I think. Anyway, I think we're going to keep that on Tuesday. We will be talking about the greatest third baseman of all time. I'm looking at the list right now, and it's a pretty loaded list. Um, and at least the bottom of the list anyway, may make some people a little bit upset. Um, so <laughs> we'll see. Um, now, uh, after. I don't think I have anything else to say about that. Uh, I just want to say everybody have a Merry Christmas, have a happy holidays, whatever you celebrate, enjoy this holiday season. Um, and looking forward to the new year, uh, with that, Kevin, do you have any parting words for our audience? Do not. This was fun. Glad to be able to air my grievances with you. (laughs) Yes, there are certainly been a lot of grievances aired on these lists. Uh, Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Total Bases Express show. I guess not so express show these last few these last few episodes, but they've been fun nonetheless. Thanks everybody for listening and uh, tune in on Tuesday to where we will be uh, playing the, or we'll be unveiling the greatest third baseman of all time. But until next time, have a Merry Christmas and have a good one, everybody. Happy Festivus.